Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Amen. Grab a seat. How are we doing this morning, everybody? Well, again, we're going to get there like every Sunday morning. It's going to be okay. Welcome to Crossroads. My name is Charlie. I'm the senior pastor here. Unlike Andy, I do have a voice, and we're going to talk for a little while, okay? Uh, we are in our third week of a series on culture and character. And where this started from was simply a conversation that we need to have as a people when we feel like the, the culture around us doesn't as much value the character of God anymore. And I see it. And so week one, we sat and talked about in Daniel 1, about how this guy, this teenager, this 15-year-old, woke up one morning in his homeland of Israel and woke up the next morning as a captive in Babylon. And for three years, he sat under an oppressive regime and learned their ways and learned their writing and learned what they ate and learned what they drank and learned their religions. And at one point, he stood up and said, I can't do this. I'm losing my identity. And so what we saw in the first week was that if we're going to have a conversation about culture, it has to begin with an understanding of our identity because your character is an extension of your identity, period. And so if you want to understand who you are in Jesus and you want your character to look more like the God of the scriptures, it's not about trying harder. It's about understanding more your identity. And when you press into your identity more, the what follows the why, you begin to look more like Jesus. And so we had a conversation about the value of knowing your identity in Jesus based on what he did for you, not what you earned from him, because that doesn't understand the actual concept of grace. And from week one, we jumped to week two last week, and we talked about some dreams and some powerful stuff. And we basically, in chapter two of Daniel, talked about how God's power is bigger and better than the power of all the other gods around us and around Daniel and his friends in, in Babylon. Today we're dealing with a story that I'm betting most of us know. Whether or not you grew up in churches, this is one of the big three in the Old Testament. This is a story in Daniel chapter 3 of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I didn't grow up with VeggieTales, but I heard there's a very nice episode on this one, all right? So I, I, my staff couldn't believe it. They gave me that look all the time, like, who are you? And I was like, I don't know, but I'm hired. So this is the culture we create. Anyway, so today we're talking about a story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're going to deal with the first half this morning because the second half of the story is actually my favorite part in the entire book of Daniel. But before we do that, there's some things we have to know before we go. Because I, I want to tell this story. In a little, from a little different perspective than maybe you saw it in the VeggieTale movies or in the, you know, the white Jesus felt boards growing up in Sunday school, okay? Um, and where we have to start is at kind of the very beginning. So if I was going to ask you, hey, what was the first thing, what was the first rule God made for us? Because when some people look at Christianity, they see rules, and that's okay-ish. They just don't grasp the beauty and meaning of all the rules and what they point to. But if I was to ask you what was the first rule God made, I'm willing to bet 98% of you would probably look at me and say, don't touch the apple, Adam, you know? You'd look at me and say, he said, don't eat the fruit. That's not exactly the first command he gave to Adam and Eve, 
the first command he gave to Adam and Eve is found in Genesis right after he said, you people are the best thing I've made. He said, you are in my image. And then he said, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Here's the problem. If we start our gospel narrative, the story of God with simply the story of do's and don'ts, we miss the beauty of God. And what God did was he said, this is the best thing I've made. And I want you to do what I did. I want you to go throughout this world that I made for you and fill it with a reflection of my goodness. And what that does, why that's really important is because it gets to the undergirding theme of why God created in the first part, not because he was bored and not because he needed you. God made us because the overflow of his goodness couldn't be limited to the Godhead. And so it overflowed onto the canvas of creation. And when he made us and said, you are the best thing I've made, you capture and carry my image. The first thing he said was do exactly what I did. Go spread that goodness to all the spaces and places I've created for you. It's a beautiful depiction of grace. If you know the story in the scriptures, The first six chapters of Genesis cover quite a long time, and it doesn't go up, it goes down. It gets to the point in Genesis 6, where it literally says in the text that God looked at the hearts of men and only saw evil all the time. Way worse than what we look around when we see our current spaces and places. And then probably the number one story in the Old Testament happens now. You get Noah and the ark. He built it in 120 years. A lot of people thought he was crazy. And then the animals marched two by two. Again, VeggieTales, guys. Huge thing from what I've heard, you know? And so they marched on there, and God sent a flood to the world to kind of press reset a little bit. And he delivered Noah and his family from the ark. And in Genesis chapter 8, he's renewing his covenant with his people again. This is in some ways a reset, a next Adam. And he looks, he looks at Noah and his family and he says, but as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase abundantly on the earth and multiply it. God said to Noah and his sons, look, I now confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you. We see from the very, very beginning, God has a relationship with us that is based upon fulfilling our role, our rhythm as rulers, as co-heirs, as spreaders of God's goodness throughout the entirety of creation. So, so we're going to start this morning with the story we referenced a couple weeks ago in Genesis 11. Because it's set in the same place, in the same place as our story today. And I think we see some parallels. So I'm going to read to you the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, 1 through 8. It goes like this. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylon and settled there. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone and tar was used for mortar. They said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. (laughs) But the Lord came down and looked at the city where the people were building. He said, look, the people are united And they speak all the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse their languages. They won't be able to understand each other. In that way and in that day, the Lord scattered them all over the world and they stopped building the city. That is why the city was called Babel. Because that's where the Lord confused the people with different languages. And he scattered them all over the world. It's more than just a story about people wanting all the glory and praise. It is that. But it fundamentally is juxtaposed to the principle that God instilled in us from the get-go. So that people might know God. 
And here's why we're getting there today. The first verse in chapter 3 where we're going to be starts out like this. King Nebuchadnezzar had a golden statue made. It was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. He erected it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. This is thousands of years later. This is the same space they tried to build this tower before. And what we're going to see as we get into our text is a lot of of similarities between what was and what is and three men that stood up and said, I don't want this to go down this way. Before we get into our text, we're going to do what we do at CBC on Sunday morning. We have two prayers, uh, two things we want to pray for every Sunday. One is that we know God in this space. And when we say know God, we're going to define that differently than just head knowledge. But we do want to understand who God is. And the main way that we do that in our current context and culture is through the scriptures. Because God painted a picture of himself in there. And so we open the scriptures together and we read and we laugh and we cry and we talk about veggie tales and we're convicted people, okay? Um, and then the second thing we want to do, because knowledge only leads to experiencing God's influence, otherwise you can't fully know, is we worship God together. And as those two things happen, what, what we see in this place is the Holy Spirit working. So this is not a place where you come and passively sit and listen and maybe laugh every once in a while. We have work to do together. And we trust that God is living and active in here. So as we read the text, we're engaging with the Spirit of God to edify us, to shape us, to uplift us, to encourage us together as we enter into his presence. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to give you some space um, just to pray silently to yourself that God might do a work in you today. And I'm going to ask that you pray for me that I don't embarrass any of us this morning. All right, let's pray. God, I'm thankful that we can gather here once again. I'm thankful that we can have a conversation about some stories that maybe we've heard before, probably we've heard before. I pray that as we do it, um, you teach us fresh and new things about your character or remind us things that we've forgotten. So I'd ask if you're comfortable, take a few seconds and just ask the Holy Spirit to do a work in your spirit this morning as we read through the scriptures. And then I'd ask that you pray for me, that the words I use might be edifying and uplifting and encouraging, and they might accurately paint the picture of the character of God that we see in our scriptures. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said... Amen. We're in it together. Open your Bibles if you got it. Genesis. Nope, sorry. Daniel. We were in Genesis. Chapter 3. Uh, let, let's just catch up a little bit because this story builds directly on the last story. If you were with us last week, Daniel uh, was thrown into an impossible situation. The king had a dream. He's new in his, in his kingship of Babylon, the most powerful man in the world. You can make an argument he's the most powerful man that's ever ruled. It says in the scriptures that not only did people listen, but all the animals did too. He had complete and utter dominion over all of the known world. And he woke up one morning and he was terrified and couldn't go back to bed because he had a dream. And the dream wasn't comforting. He saw the statue and this big boulder wrecked the statue. And he was terrified, terrified that he was going to come to ruin. Because the king before him was assassinated. And like anybody else, he wants to protect his power. And so he summoned his wise people. And he said, I need you guys to interpret the dream for me, but I don't know you that well. I don't know if you're coming for me or not. So you're going to tell me the dream first. 
And then you're going to interpret it. And they said, nobody can do that. Literally last week in kind of the climax, I think it's verse 13 of that chapter, they look around and they say, no man can do this. Only God can do it. And God doesn't dwell among men. And then Daniel steps into the narrative. And Daniel says, my God's different than your God because he's real. And let me tell you how he can interpret this dream. And so Daniel says, he prays to God and he says, hey, I've been given the interpretation, goes to Nebuchadnezzar through his executioner, weird chain of events there. And he says, I can tell you what it is. And he does. He interprets the dream. And the dream started, and if you remember, with this idea that there is this statue. Let me read verses 38 and 39 from the last chapter. Whenever human beings or wild animals, wherever the birds of the sky live, God has given them into your power. He's given you authority over all of them. You, he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Now, after you, another kingdom will arise, one inferior to yours. And so then he goes about explaining this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is so incredibly overjoyed. At the end of his explanation, he looks at Daniel, who he was just about to have killed. And he said, he, he said in, um, it's in verse 48, then Nebuchadnezzar bowed down with his face to the ground and paid homage to Daniel. He gave orders to offer sacrifices and and increase their role. The king replied to Daniel, certainly your God is a God of gods, the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. You were able to reveal this mystery to me. So we have this high point. Here's the deal. We have this high point and then we go to chapter three. And in the middle there, something happened because he said, hey, you're going to have this big everlasting um, boulder come down and wreck shop to what you've done. And seemingly what happens between chapter 2 and chapter 3 is is Nebuchadnezzar turns and praises the God of Daniel, but he forgets really quickly. And he builds this statue as kind of a, a, a monument to what he's building. It seemingly is juxtaposed to the end of chapter 2. What he's saying is, I know God said that there's going to be a kingdom that comes after me, but I don't want to buy into it. So I'm going to build this big thing and prove to you I'm not going anywhere. And by the way, since I'm the head of gold, the whole thing will be made of gold. We see this with Nebuchadnezzar through the first six chapters of Daniel. He seemingly is a man that learns quickly and forgets even quicker. We do it all the time. I know right now you're looking at everybody saying every single morning, I can't believe it's 97 degrees at 8 a.m., but in February you're going to be asking if it's ever going to get warm again. I've lived in this community for a long time, all right? I know that we forget just as quickly as we are taught things. It's the plight of being human. And Nebuchadnezzar can't escape that plight either. He says, I'm going to worship your God. Your God is the best. But then he says, I know you told me my kingdom's not going to make it, but I'm going to prove to you that it is. In verse one, it was 90 feet tall and nine feet wide. He erected it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And, and there are three components to what he's doing in the first eight verses of this chapter. So the first thing he does is he, he builds this monstrosity in the middle of the plain of Dura. And the reason why you build it in the plain of Dura is because it can be seen from everywhere. It's about nine and a half stories tall. That's very, very, very tall. It's really skinny, so it's probably a statue to one of his gods. Nebo was his patron god, so most likely a statue to Nebo in the middle of nowhere so that wherever people came from, they could see it. And he didn't stop with stone. He said, I'm going to make it resplendent. I'm going to make the whole thing gold. I'm showing you that I have the power and the, I have the staying power to stick around regardless of the dream that Daniel just interpreted. So he's building this statue to show that he's good. In verse 2, 
says Nebuchadnezzar sent out a summons to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistries, and all the other authorities of the province to attend the dedication of the statue. What we begin to see at the beginning of this story is that Nebuchadnezzar is throwing one heck of a party. So he builds the biggest thing they've ever seen, and he invites the best, most powerful people that they know of. The satraps were the highest political officials in each province. The princes or the prefects were the military chief. The governors were the heads of the sections of the provinces. The counselors were the advisors and the judges and the highest ranking officials. The treasurers were the superintendents of all the money. And the counselors were secondary judges. And the magistrates or the sheriffs were the lower level legal officials. Basically, he gathered the richest and the wisest and the most influential people because he wanted to prove a point. That he is powerful. We've been there before. We go to parties and we absolutely judge how popular the people at the party are by the people that are at the party. You know? I don't know if you guys, there's a movie about this. I forget the name of it. But have you guys ever been to a wedding where you sit at the head table and you feel important? And then you've been at a wedding where you sit with the second cousin table. You know what I'm talking about? And you're like something, I, they love me. I'm their favorite person. You're not. You're not. But you got invited, right? It's this idea that we feel more powerful and we feel better about ourselves and we invite important people and they show up for us. So what Nebuchadnezzar's doing is he's throwing a party and he absolutely is inviting everybody that is anybody from the known world. But it doesn't stop there. It says in verses four and five, the herald made a loud proclamation to you, O peoples, nations, languages, groups, the following command is given. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, trigon, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must bow down. You know it's a party because there's a zither, everybody. I mean, come on, right? So basically the point of that is the point of the people above. He lists all these things, and it's not an inclusive list. And it's not an exclusive list. If you played the trumpet, you could probably still show up, everybody. The point there is that all kinds of music were represented because this was a heck of a party. I don't know if you guys have been to weddings where they do, like mine, for example, we did an Apple playlist because it's cheap and it's good and I can pick what I want. I've been to two weddings, two in my life, and I've been to a lot of weddings. I've been to two weddings in my life with a live band. Those things are fantastic, you know? There is a difference between pressing shuffle on an iTunes playlist and having people live, bands and trumpets and saxophones and xylophones and zithers, if you can find out what that thing is in the current time and place. There's a difference between the kind of party that says, I'm going to have all the live instruments and I'm going to have a couple. Nebuchadnezzar is making it clear that he wants all the live instruments because what we need to understand here is what he's doing is saying the kind of party that I'm throwing shows the purpose of the party. So he's bringing all these important people and he's bringing all this music because what he wants to do is show people how powerful he is. He wants to show people his worth. And we know that to be true. The kind of parties we show or throw, they in all ways dictate the kind of, of, kind of the purpose of the party itself. It reminds me of a a Friends episode. Friends has a resurgence now on Netflix. If you haven't watched it, that's okay. Uh, but there's a scene that now I relate to that I didn't when I watched it in high school when it first came out. And it's the three guys. It's Joey, Ross, and Chandler. And I think it's their 30th birthday. And they want like this huge party for their 30th birthday. They, they reminisce on all the big parties of the past for their 30th birthdays. They want to go out and stay up till the sun comes up. About 9 p.m. they end up back in the coffee shop, right? 
And it's funny because they're kicking it around saying, when did we get so old? And they just start talking about how, isn't it, it's not bad that we maybe are in a place where we can hear each other. It's not bad that maybe we go to a place where we can have a deep conversation. It's not bad that maybe we go to bed at a reasonable hour. When I was 25, I listened to that and said, oh my gosh, that's terrible. Now that sounds like the best Friday I've had in years, all right? It's just the difference of my birthday parties now look different than they were when I was 25. The purpose um, of the people and the music at the party shines light on the purpose of the party itself. So, We had all kinds of music in verse 7, all peoples, all nations, and languages, and groups, and they began bowing down and paying homage to the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had erected. (laughs) And here's where we get our Babel moment, you know? It's thousands of years later, and it seems like the curse of Babel is being undone. It seems like the known world is showing up to this space. And what they're doing isn't just paying homage to Nebuchadnezzar and his idol. What they're doing is worshiping him. Make no mistake about it. This is not just a party. This is a worshiping event. It's what we see in our text today. And some of the themes that are going to pop out of our text today is that worship is integral to understanding our character as followers of God. Integral. Because Nebuchadnezzar throws this party so that people can show up and worship. And in a polytheistic culture, there's a couple different things you have to know about worship. So what we mean by that is Nebuchadnezzar actually never asked them just to worship his God. He said, throw this among the gods that you worship. He wasn't saying only worship this one thing. Our God says that, but his doesn't. And so he said, basically show up and worship. And what he wants is his God, his gods, his deities. What he wants is them to have priority over all the other ones. In a polytheistic society, it wasn't about the number of gods you worship. It was the priority of of the gods you worshipped. It reminds me of, I don't know how familiar you are with French history, but we're going to go there this morning, everybody. In, in the middle of the 16th century, there was a king called Henry IV. There's a phrase, good King Henry, that's where it comes from. And there's a 36-year war between the Protestant Huguenots and the Catholics. And I don't know how much you know about church history or about, you know, Middle Eastern or Middle Age history, but essentially it went in pendulum swings of power that was tied to religion, and it got really bloody. And usually, if a certain religious group took over, they wiped out the group before them. So you have a 36-year window in France. There's a power struggle between Protestants and Catholics, and it was really bloody. Three million people died. So Henry IV took over, and he was a Protestant. He was a Protestant, and he worshipped in the ways that the Protestants did. And make no mistake about it, they thought that the other side of this coin, Protestants to Catholics, Catholics to Protestants, they, they thought it was, it was more than just preference. It was more than just if you like to kneel a lot or eat, you know, a gluten-free wafer when you take communion. It had more to do with your view on communion. It, it literally, they saw it as a different religion entirety. So if you were Catholic, you didn't worship the same God. If you were Protestant, you didn't worship the same God. Big deal. So Henry IV took over. And he has this phrase that's attributed to him. It says, Paris is worth a mass. What happened was, and it's really substantial, um, in 1596, I think it was, he actually converted to Catholicism from being a Protestant Huguenot. And that was a big deal. It actually ended the 36-year, 3 million people war. And what he's saying in this line is that, let me tell you what my priorities are. It's not necessarily on the God that I follow. It's peace. (laughs) 
What he's saying is my priority in this, I'm going to worship however I need to worship so that my people stop killing each other. And that is noble. But here's what we find out about worship first and foremost from our stories and from our lives is that worship reveals your priorities every single time. What you worship will tell me what you prioritize in life. And for the king, and it might not have been a bad decision, for the king, what he said was, I'm going to prioritize peace over the God that I want to follow. He said, I'm just going to switch completely because it matters more in this moment. You gather people, satraps, governors, officials from all over the known world. And what Nebuchadnezzar is saying is regardless of the gods that you serve, you're going to bow down to mine in front of me. And you're going to pick mine over yours. What you worship in this moment will determine or reveal your priorities every single time. And so when we talk about it today, I'd I'd probably look at where your priorities are if you want to find out what you worship, whether that's safety and security, which is in the flower plex bubble pretty much at the top of the list. I just installed a ring doorbell and now I can see everything that happens in my home. And man, I'll tell you what, it changes the game when I can freak my wife out and talk to her when she's in the porch swing, okay? But I think we have to find out where our priorities are and then you find out what you're worshiping. This is what was happening in the story of Nebuchadnezzar and all his people and all the known world when he gathered the world together and said, look at what we can build without God. And so when we talk about the priority and what we worship, there's a, a line that I love from a commentator. He said, whenever much is made of a person, less is made of the Lord. It's a great mistake to think that blasphemy needs to be carefully planned and thought out. Blasphemy is natural to the human heart. It will therefore manifest itself in other religious activities until it's deliberately rejected. <laughs> if you want to know where you worship, find out where your priorities are. And this, nobody's immune to this. I, I'm not immune to this. I don't know if you guys know this, but this is a church in the 21st century. We track everything you do. That sounds really creepy. We track everything you do in the building, okay? And what we mean by that is, you know, we count how many people show up to all our spaces just to know what's going on. We count how many people hit our website. We count how many downloads of the sermons there are. And some weeks I look at that way too much, you know? Where our priorities are depends on what we're worshiping. That's a conversation we have all the time because... Blasphemy in our hearts doesn't need prompting. It is just there. They gathered together to worship themselves. There were three men that seemingly didn't share the same opinion. Uh, Look at verse 8 with me. I'm going to read a little bit from verse 8 on. For this reason at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against, uh, malicious accusations against the Jews. They responded and said to the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, every man who hears um, the flute, the lyre, all the other instruments to bow down and worship, and who doesn't, in verse 11, who doesn't fall down to the golden image and worship will be cast into the midst of a blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration from the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. It's really interesting. Uh, You see these people, um, these satraps, these officials for Nebuchadnezzar. And the first thing you have to understand is they have an axe to grind. At the end of the last chapter, after Daniel interpreted the dream, Nebuchadnezzar actually put Daniel and his three friends above all the other wise men. The Chaldeans, which is who's complaining here, they were the top of the food chart when it came to wise men in power. And they got usurped by the Jews. So literally when it says that they made a complaint against, 
The actual Hebrew phrase, they ate their pieces. It's literally like us saying that they sank their teeth into. They were waiting for this moment that they could really eat them alive, betray them and sacrifice them because they didn't like that they were in power anymore. And so you have these Chaldeans that said, I see people who absolutely don't do what you say to do. And, and because, O oh king, O oh God, you're good. Because you're good, you promised us that you will give in and throw them into the fire. This is the part of the story that we all know. Read with me verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and anger gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? So he brings him to this place, and he says, Are you disobeying my orders? And, and one thing we have to realize in our text this morning that, that is subtly there, so the golden image that we're talking about, like I said, it's probably an image to his god Nebo, um, most commentators would agree that, that it's probably not an image of himself. But what's really interesting here, what's really interesting is there's a phrase there when it says that, that you have erected, that he had literally, um, it means set up or to shape up. What, what that means there, it's actually the most common phrase in our text this morning. Every time it says the image, it was credit to the image to Nebuchadnezzar. Make no mistake about it. What Nebuchadnezzar is doing is saying, show up and worship the image that I built. He's placing himself superior to the image that he built. This is a coronation for Nebuchadnezzar, not his gods. And so when, when he looks at the three men and says, you're not going to worship this God that I made, mind you. And if you can make a God, you are superior to the God that you made. That's the Genesis 1 story. If you make something, you have authority over it. I say that to my daughter every day. And if you understand how that goes, authority is built into the conversation of our text and our characters. So he looks at the three men and he says, how dare you not serve me? It says in verse 13, they don't serve your gods. They don't pay homage to the golden statue that you have erected. Here's the second thing we see. Worship reveals your priorities, but it also establishes what your authority is. So let me say it another way. Worship in every way points towards your priorities, but what you worship will become the authority in your life. It'll do it every single time. And when we say authority, we don't just mean it can tell you what to do. We mean you say, it, it sets your cue for all the other things in your life. And so if what you worship is comfortability, then comfortability becomes the authority against all the other things that are vying for authority in your life. There was a story in Acts chapter 5. It's a really fantastic story. It's the first church. And they got, two of the men got thrown in prison, which happened quite a bit. God let them out of prison. They got thrown in prison for proselytizing, for talking about Jesus and Jewish community that didn't believe in Jesus. They thought it was sacrilegious. So they get thrown in prison, and, and they go to see them out of the prison the next day, and they can't find him. They say, where, where are the two men that we put in this prison? And some people run up to him and say, I found them. They're in the city center, and they're proselytizing. And, and the, pro, the, the Pharisees' minds are kind of blown, and them saying, but we just put them in prison for this. How did they get out? And they didn't run away, and they didn't go somewhere else, and they didn't go on the lamb. What they did was do the same thing that got us in here in the first place. And this is Acts chapter 5. I'm going to read from verse 24. 
It says that, but someone came and reported, look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple courts and teaching the people. Then the commander of the temple guard went with the officers and brought the apostles without the use of force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Verse 27, when they brought them in, the apostles stood before them on the council, and the high priest questioned them. The high priest was the ruling figure in the Jewish world. He questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, look, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring God's um, to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles replied, "We must obey God rather than people. What you worship establishes your authority." It's why, for example. When we look at the Ten Commandments, the first commandment we see in the Ten Commandments is when God says, you will have no other gods before me because if you do, what he said next doesn't matter because he has no authority in your life. <laughs> so what I'm saying here is if you want to follow in the ways of, if you want to have a character that reflects the goodness of God, worship God because your authority stems from and established by what you worship in your life. What we're doing is making connections saying you cannot be people that live into the character of God if you're not people that worship that God. Because what you worship points to your priorities and it establishes your authorities and these men knew it. They knew it. They said to worship another God is to give up God as my priority and God as my authority and I won't do it. And Nebuchadnezzar got angry because he wanted that for himself. And here I think is the, the tension one of the bigger tensions in our text. In verse 15, it says, if you don't pay homage to it, you will immediately be thrown in the midst of the furnace of the blazing fire. And, and for the life of me, when I got told the story growing up, as I thought about it getting into this week a little bit, I thought, yeah, there's a fire. We've been burned. I know what that feels like. Not fun. A little different. So they just made this statue that was 90 feet tall and nine feet wide, and it was made of gold or inlaid with gold, one or the other. The point here is they needed a lot of gold. And to melt a lot of gold down. So, so, so literally what he's saying, you gotta get this picture in your head, is you have a king here, you have all these other people that they can see representing all the world that they know about, worshiping this king that established this statue. And this king says, if you don't do this, I'm going to throw you in the fire. And this wasn't next week. This was there is literally a melting kiln right there where we put the gold through and we will throw you in there. They can probably feel the heat from this place. The, the, the ways that they refined the gold, there was this hourglass-looking structure, and it says literally one commentator, the temperatures in these kilns could reach as high as 1,000 degrees centigrade, 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. I know what you're saying. That was last Thursday. I get it. It's really, really hot, right? It's really, really hot. You can, one can only imagine the fear that engulfed the crowd as the flames leapt from the top of the furnace and the smoke billowed forth. So... You got to get the, the picture of what's going on. We have all the known world gathering to worship what they built. We've seen that story before. And you have three men that are standing up saying, we won't because God is our priority and God is our authority. And then the king, the ruler, the person that has the power says, if you don't, I'm going to put you in there. And they could see it. <laughs> and they could see it. And I think here's the tension in worship. Here's the tension as we live in a culture that doesn't worship the God that maybe we try to, to live out our character against. The tension is the seen and the unseen. The tension is that God calls us to worship a God that we can't see. And it's hard because as a people, as a people, the story of the Bible has been, we typically try and worship a God that we can. 
And it goes back to Babylon. It goes back to Genesis. It goes back to Moses and the Ten Commandments and the Golden Calf. It goes back to the plight of the people that we try to worship gods we can see because we're not good at worshiping gods we can't. And this is the tension of our moment is the seen versus the unseen. You're going to keep worshiping your God who you can't see or everything that you can see around you. In verse 15, at the end of it, he looks at the people and says, now, who is this God that can rescue you from my power? And this is what's difficult, is I look around and the authorities in our world sometimes don't reflect the character of God themselves. I think of Nebuchadnezzar used his government to his advantage. He set it up in the system of government that they had. I I think of our government, for example, Uh, not to dive too deep into politics because I don't know if this is the place for it. Uh, There's two phrases I love, though. Uh, Winston Churchill said, the best argument against a democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter, right? I think that is absolutely true. He also said in the same breath, it said, um, and it's been said democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others that have been tried. Here's my point. I think that the grace that we have of our government is beautiful, but I don't know if the systems in our government accurately reflect the character of God as much as they used to. I read about a court case in the Supreme Court this summer, that, and there's one usually every couple years they want to remove phrases like under God or in God we trust from our currency and our Pledge of Allegiance. I talk to teachers that can't talk about their faith anymore in public schools that leave their Bible out hoping that people ask, I hear kids be taught only things of the secular world and not things of faith anymore. I'm just simply saying that good, bad, or indifferent, our government's a grace, but sometimes, 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 it is absolutely not an accurate depiction of the character of Christ. And so as we look around at the authorities in our world, we have to ask the question, what are we worshiping? And is what we're worshiping affecting? How is it affecting what we listen to? How is it affecting what our authority is? You have these three men. And they're saying, I'm not going to stand anymore in a space where people don't recognize my God, (laughs) even though they can't see my God and I can't. And and what that does for me is it changes the narrative a bit. So if you think back to the Tower of Babel, if you think back to how that story ended, I always thought that it was a punishment. So the text goes, and that day the Lord scattered them all over the world. And when they stopped building, and then they stopped building the city. That's why the city was called Babel, because that's where the Lord confused the people with different languages. In this way, he scattered them all over the world. And there's a tension there between the seen and the unseen. They were trying to build this monument to themselves so they could worship it instead of the God that placed them there that said, go and grow so people might know my influence. And what we see in our text is kind of the same thing. And for years and years and years, I thought that God dividing them up was he was mad and he was angry and he was punishing them. You're going to speak this, and you're going to speak this, now go. But I think I see it differently now. I think I see God dividing up the languages of the people, not as a punishment, but a grace. I think I see God dividing the people up, saying, if you think you can do everything through your power, you won't know that you need me. If you think you can build something that accurately reflects my goodness and my character, you don't understand me. I think what I've changed on is I now more value the fact that I get to worship a God I can't see. So I could see God, I would confine God. And that's the tension of our text this morning is simply that we're called to worship a God we can't see and what we worship reveals our priorities and establishes our authority and God says, worship me. Because as people, just like in Genesis 1, as people that share the love and the goodness of God, every space and place we walk, what we're supposed to do because we're made in his image is point people to the invisible. (laughs) 
is be beacons of light in the middle of the darkness. And even though everything we see around us might not point to the character of our God who's good, we are called to show people who he is as we worship. And so the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego simply tells us the value of worship in our character that follows a God who's good. And it asks us, it begs us to worship a God that we can't see so that people might get a glimpse of his goodness too. Let's worship together. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful just for your goodness. <laughs> I often want to see more of you and I get frustrated that I can't. But it's in moments like this when I'm thankful that I can't. Because I need to know that my God is, is, is bigger than what I can see. I've got to fight that tension to make the image of God something that's attainable, that's touchable, that's containable. So I, I pray that as we worship this morning, that it becomes a higher priority in our life to worship a God who's good. I pray that as we worship this morning, we fall under the authority of a good God who should have good plans for the world, that we might go and people might know my goodness. I pray that we remember his charge from Genesis 1, that as we try and live out his character in our world, that we might be a worshiping people because that's how people see the invisible. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.